Go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8. Uh, we are right at the heart, as we'll see, of this chapter. That's page 310 of your Pew Bibles. Chapter 8 is a long chapter in, in 1 Kings. And so uh, this is the longest passage uh, we will likely look at. And so uh, what we want to do is I want to start the passage. We won't read the whole thing. It's quite lengthy. Um, and then we'll look at it as we go through. So if you will, stand with me at a register for God's holy word. We want to start in verse 22. Uh, the writer of First Kings writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand, have fulfilled it to this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we come to this text, an important text, right at the climax of the Hebrew Bible, uh, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your kingdom, our ears, we would heed and hear your word, our mouth, that we'd speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet, that we would go in, in obedience. Lord, transform us to be like Jesus, and may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Well, we just had a, a fun little laugh at technology and, and the good and the bad of it, I guess you can say. The same is true when it comes to communication. Studies have shown that technology that is designed to help us connect are actually leading to our disconnects. What is supposed to bring us together actually makes communication more difficult and complicated. Take, for example, the text message. I'm willing to bet that if I were to ask, what do you think is better for interpersonal relationships? Older generations would say, pick up the phone, right? Younger generations would probably say, a simple text will suffice. In fact, I've, I've tried to call a number of younger generations and they don't answer. They didn't respond with, what do you need, right? Don't that just want to blink them right in the eyes, right, to the glory of God, right? But the thing about something like text messaging or email or direct messaging or other forms of communication that may be convenient is they actually harm communication. One study in 2021 showed that one third of adults have had a falling out with someone simply by misreading text messages. Think about it. A text message, you can't read someone's tone. You don't know if they're, if they're making a joke or if they're being serious. Someone uh, put a comment on my Twitter page recently and is a pastor friend of mine. And I thought, what in the Sam Hills is this guy talking about? So I did the godly thing. I completely ignored it, which then he responded with, that was supposed to be a joke about, and he explained it to me. He goes, you did the godly thing and just overlooked it. Like, then I hit like, yes, yes, I, I, yes, I, I'm with you now, I see it. But you can't read tone. You, you can't tell someone's laughing you know, with you, laughing at you, being critical, being praiseworthy. It's difficult. 
There's no facial expressions with these types of communications. And don't, you young folks, don't come at me and say, well, what about emojis? And you're the problem, you emoji people, right? Particularly you older adults who do emojis. Can you tell me uh, the, the emoji that's this? Is that praying hands or two guys smacking hands in a high five? Which is it? Yeah, and someone here is going to say he's praying, right? I, that's the thing. I don't know. I don't know which one it is. So I don't know if you're praying for me. Uh, and, and here I am saying, I've had a miserable day. Y'all over here, I'm praying for you. The rest of y'all over here are like, yeah, I hope you suffer. I don't know which one it is. I don't know. You can't read facial expressions. Emojis don't help. Timing can be off, right? You can send a text in a moment, and in the context of that moment is good. But then if you read it six hours later, which I'm guilty of, if you text me at night, I'm ignoring you because I don't want to be around my phone at night, right? I'm not going to check the email. I'm not going to do all that. So the timing can, 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 can be off. Um, 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 but they, they can also be uh, misinterpreted because of abbreviations, this is a big one, right? Uh, I didn't grow up with all the new abbreviations, and at times you have to run through things in the head like, what in the world is this person talking about? Can I give you a fun text exchange? Apparently this is real. If not, we'll pretend it is. Anyways, mother texts, your aunt passed away, L-O-L, the son. Why is that funny, mom? The mother it's not funny, David. Why would you even ask? The son. LOL means laugh out loud. The mother. Oh, no. I thought it meant lots of love. I have got to call everyone I've already texted. <laughs> right? I think we've all been there of misreading interpret of, of, of abbreviations. Well, we all know that communication is vital to a healthy relationship. It is equally vital to your spiritual health. In fact, despite all the advances that we have in technology and every book that you can read on this or that, the truth is, if you want to grow in intimacy with God, it will always begin with communication. It will never be, go beyond simply reading your Bible and praying. And it isn't an accident then that when we come to this passage in chapter 8, I've shown this previously, in chapter 8 is written in a chiastic format, right? You end where you began, so it's an ABCBA format. And the way chiasm works in Hebrew scripture is that whenever you get to the middle, you're actually at the heart of the passage. This is what the passage is really all about. And what we've seen is, is that Solomon is inching closer to the presence of God, right? By the means of atonement, through the assurance brought about by the invitation of God and his promises that he, he has delivered. And now Solomon draws us to pray in the presence of God. A fact that we shouldn't take for granted, which means at the center of this, of God being with his people, it opens up the door for personal communication with our creator and redeemer. As such, Solomon shows us what prayer should look like when we commune with our God. The first aspect of our prayer life should be that of adoration. 
We see it there in verses 22 to 24. You'll notice that it opens up, it begins with a prayer of adoration, not a list of requests. Notice how he, he acknowledges God's greatness, God's goodness, and God's glory. He puts it this way. First of all, God is unique. He says, there is no God like you. Remember, Solomon historically is in the context of a pagan ancient Near Eastern world. There were gods everywhere you went. And although each culture was unique in, in the expressions of their faith, paganism is largely uniform. The gods are chaotic, and they're often as wicked as those who worship them. Each god is powerful, yes, but they are limited in their power. Solomon comes and declares that the God of Israel, there is none like him. Not only that, he claims that God is faithful. You see it there in verse 22, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. The consistent message of Scripture is that God's love is a perfecting, steadfast love, not a fickle, emotional one. Solomon is aware of the flaws of his father, but he celebrates that God has proven faithful to his people. Perhaps Solomon has Deuteronomy 7 in mind, uh, which I forgot to put up there. Um, no, I didn't. It's right here. It was not be- technology is the theme of, of, the, of, of, Sunday, of this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Know therefore the Lord your God is God. Notice the language of uniqueness. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. One wonders if Solomon has that in mind here. He's saying that you are unique. You are faithful to your covenant of people. Not only that, he climaxes in this portion of the prayer that God is present. Notice he mentions the servants who walk before you with all their heart. In fact, we could say, as we have said, that the center of 1 Kings 8, the whole point of this chapter, is is all about how God dwells among his people. How God will dwell among his people. And what does it look like when God dwells among his people? And we've seen that in order for God to dwell, we must be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And doing so, God draws us to his very presence. And there now we see that we are in open communication with him. And here he, Solomon is, is celebrating the fact God is with us. I think one of the reasons why our prayer life suffers, particularly in the area of adoration, is we take God for granted. He's the big man upstairs, you know what I'm saying? But if you were to pause and consider the fact, the God who hung the stars... The God who hung from a tree for your sins is the God whom you commune with. That's pretty amazing. I remember that whenever I first met my wife, uh, I've always had a stuttering issue. But when I first met her, all I could do was stutter. You remember those days? You remember when you were in love, right? You know, uh, uh, hi, hi, um, uh, my my name is... um, You're pretty, right? You remember those days? You remember those days? It's striking, isn't it, that that the more you take for granted this communication relationship you have with with, with your spouse and special someone is is you you, you lose that sort of innocence, don't you? 
Because you take it for granted. They're always there. They'll always listen. They'll always open for communication. And we do the same thing with God. Think about it. You could right now speak to the God who is our creator and redeemer. That thought alone should draw us to worship. Draw us to adore the God of our salvation. Solomon begins with adoration. He quickly moves to supplication. Verses 25 to to 30. If we are honest, I'm willing to bet that our prayer lives are dominated by requests. Uh, D.A. Carson, in one of his um, uh, lectures, he he says that go to the average uh, prayer meeting at the local Baptist church. What you'll find is we spend more time praying people out of heaven than we do praying them into heaven, right? His point is that we spend so much time talking about be with Aunt Flossie who has an ingrown toenail and she won't stop complaining about it, right? We spend so much time trying to keep people healthy. We don't spend a lot of time drawing people to the kingdom. I think there's some truth to that. But we are guilty of when we do pray, we only want from God. Whereas prayer is to draw us to want God. That's the difference. Now, there isn't wrong, anything wrong with supplication. But when our prayer life is dominated by request, we turn God into a genie that we could put back in the bottle till we need him or an ATM machine. If we just know the right codes and the right rituals and the right words, we can get from him. That can be quite dangerous. God welcomes our request because he is a loving father. But our prayer life must be more than that. But with that said, uh, Solomon shows us a supplication. In fact, what, what sticks out to me is how simple his requests are. Notice he, he prays for two things. First, he prays for protection there in verse 24, right? Where he says, you have kept your servant David, my father, um, that you declared to him. You spoke with the mouth, your hands fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, right? He's acknowledging God's faithfulness in this one area. Now, therefore, verse 25, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, that you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of David. Notice he's saying here is, is that he is requesting that God would continue to honor his promises. Remember that he has just established in the section of adoration that God is the God who, as he said, has steadfast love to your servant who walks before you with all their heart. This is verse 23. He is not doubting grace. Here he is reaffirming it. He is acknowledging that he and his descendants, much like his father, will struggle They have flaws. They will have their failures. And he is asking God to protect his line, protect the line of David, his father. In fact, verse 26 is significant because that's the summary of it, that there will be one who sits on the throne of David forever. And we understand reading this, that the Davidic covenant, which is what you have in verse 26, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ, who is the eternal king Son of David, who sits upon a throne that not death itself will take from him. But he prays not only for the protection of his throne, he prays for the attention of his maker. Notice the language there in verse 27. Uh, he, He says there, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Right, that's good theology, isn't it? Solomon understands the temple means God is with them in the present. He also recognized God cannot be bound to a building. 
But nevertheless, excuse me, he says there in verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to this plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. And you may listen to the prayer that your servant offered towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant of your people Israel. When they pray toward this place, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear forgive. You notice there he's praying for attention. That is that God, when we come to you, hear our prayers. Hebrew word is used three or four times there. Listen. You remember in Hebrew, the word listen means more than, than hear. It means action. When we cry out to you, when we come into this holy sacred place, hear our voices, hear our cries, give us attention, your attention. As we see here, there is nothing wrong with supplication. It is a vital part of prayer. Much like a father would want to hear the request of his son or daughter, so too God wants to hear the voices of his children. The challenge again becomes when supplication dominates our prayer life. In prayer, as we said, we are not trying to get from God. We are wanting to get God. So let our supplication not be primarily for selfish means. Let them rather be for the good of others. And this leads to the third thing Solomon shows us, and this is the dominant part of this passage, and that is intercession. Adoration, supplication, intercession. Intercession is when we request of God for the good of others. We intercede for others. In fact, one could argue that in many ways, what prayer is at its heart is intercession for the good of others. Now, this is a lengthy section, so we we can't go in any detail here. But just for the sake of simplicity, there are uh, the rest of this passage is broken down into seven subsections. And what, the, what Solomon is doing is he is interceding as a royal priest. For those who come on Wednesday nights, you'll be familiar with that language. But he is interceding as a royal priest on behalf of his people. So let me just summarize a lot of this. The first request is in verses 31 to 32. He intercedes for when uh, men violate neighborly love. When one man shows violence towards another, for example, right? Uh, he intercedes that God would hear their cry and he would give, show kindness and forgiveness and grace. Verses 33 to 34 is that God would, uh, he is intercede for Israel when they fall to their enemies in battle. Verses 35 to 40 is Solomon intercedes for when Israel suffers divine judgment. Judgment here for Solomon shows up in the form of drought, and it will show up in the form of famine if you read uh, those verses. Uh, fourthly, I think fourthly, he prays, uh, he intercedes for Israel when Gentiles convert. This is interesting. Verses 41 to 43 may be worth looking at, actually. Verse 41, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Notice what what Solomon, I I think that's worth dwelling on, don't you? One of the biggest problems with Israel is when they they limit proper worship of Yahweh to racial identity. 
That's a problem. That's a big problem. Read the New Testament. It's all over the place. It's difficult for Gentiles, Samaritans, and Galileans to come into the house of God because they're not pure-blooded Jews. And notice what Solomon is saying here is that the purpose of the temple is that Israel will be a light to the nations. The borders of Israel would, ex- would expand as was the vision of Eden. And, and that all the nations would bow before the throne of God who now dwells with his people. We just sang about Revelation 5 where every tribe, people group, nation, and tongue will gather and praise to the name of God the Father. This is the vision going all the way back to, to the days of Israel. And it's still the vision now with the age of the church. Not an accident then that when, when Pentecost happened, it was people among the nations who are gathered there at Pentecost who then go out to the nations, not with an ethnic message, but with the gospel that transcends such tribal barriers. And we see it here in the Old Testament. Well, he intercedes on behalf of Gentiles who would convert. He also intercedes for when Israel has to go out to war. This is the sixth request that he makes, the sixth intercessory request. Unfortunately, nations war against nations. If you don't believe me, turn on the news. David was constantly at war, as will many of his descendants. Solomon is among the few who won't have to face a lot of battles. And he is is interceding on behalf of any king who has to make the difficult decision to send his army into battle. He's praying, God, would you be with your people forever? Well, although some of these requests may be strange to our ears, the pattern of interceding on behalf of others is vital to a healthy prayer life. Are you praying more for the good of others? Are you praying more for your own benefits? Can I give you another model maybe we can look at? This is free. It's a bit of a footnote. My favorite book on prayer is a skinny, skinny, skinny book. It was written in 15th. 35 by the German reformer Martin Luther. The book is called A Simple Way to Pray. It's an excellent book. We went through it years ago on Wednesday nights, and maybe, maybe that'd be worth doing it again. The context of the book was Martin Luther, one of his closest friends, was his barber, longtime friend with his barber. And as you do, you get talking to your barber, you share things with your barber, you probably wouldn't share with others. And uh, the barber says, Dr. Martin, uh, what, what is a simple way to pray? And he went home and he wrote this book. Don't you wish you could just go home and write a book, right? And people be reading it over 500 years later. Well, in the book, he helps us, he shows us how we can pray amid particularly tumultuous times. This is what I turn to whenever there is mass shootings, natural disasters, war, things like that. What are three things to consider in our prayer life? And I'll put them up here for you. That, that this, these are, this, this is in the context of intercession, but prayer. I think this is a helpful guide to me. It's free to you. It's a footnote in the text. These three things. One, we pray for the conversion of sinners. You should already have a list of at least five people, at least five people who are lost. You are praying for, not daily, but throughout the day. God, bring my my friend, bring my coworker, bring my, 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 my child, bring my loved one, bring my neighbor to Christ. I can't do it, but you can. Use me if it be your will, but bring them to faith. Souls are at stake. We pray for the conversion of sinners. We also pray for the protection of the innocents. We live in a dangerous world and we intercede on behalf of those who are innocent that that God would keep them safe and protected. 
And thirdly, we pray for judgment upon the wicked. If we had our way, the whole world would be redeemed and we'd all be brothers and sisters in Christ. But unfortunately, we live in a fallen world where most remain in the rebellion. We pray that if, if, if God will not convert every sinner, let him judge every and all wickedness. This is consistent, you see, throughout Scripture. Read the Psalms. Read the New Testament. We want to see God's justice shown in the conversion of sinners, the protection of the innocent, and the judgment of the wicked. One last part we see in this text, and that is redemption. We've seen adoration. We've seen supplication. We have seen intercession. And finally, redemption. This is the seventh and the final petition that Solomon makes starting in verse 46. And you need to remember the context of which this book was originally written. It was written in the context of exile. The northern tribes have been exiled by the Assyrians. The southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, exiled by the Babylonians. And here they are retelling their national story. They've gotten to this part. And here Solomon is praying for them. And what Solomon prays for is that when the day comes and the ultimate act of judgment is carried out against my people, and that act of judgment is that God would remove them, exile them from the land, that in the midst exile, God would hear their prayers of repentance and he would show steadfast love and forgiveness. Notice there are three aspects of this. The first is judgment, verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, that that is a footnote, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Notice their judgment. You are angry with them, and God's anger is to response in judgment. By the way, that's a good thing. When we get angry, we respond with judgment, but for some reason, we don't like a God who responds in judgment when he gets angry. But if God's anger is righteous, then his judgments are righteous. The problem is, usually our anger is unrighteous, which means our judgments are unrighteous. God, God isn't like that. God will become angry with his covenantal people when they do not keep the covenants. And Solomon realizes if, if the day comes and our people rebel, you send your judgment. We, we recognize that is necessary. However, notice he moves from judgment to repentance, starting in verse 47. He says, Yet if they turn, from, uh, turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted per perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carry them captive and pray to you toward the land which you gave them to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, the house that I have built for you. Notice here, he's prolonging this. If they pray and they cry out in repentance, remember his quest, his, 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 his supplication, listen to their requests. Listen to their prayers. Notice he defines repentance as turning one's heart away from sin, repenting of that sin, and pleading for grace. That's his definition of repentance. And if he says when they do that, even in amid their uh, captors in the captive land, while under your judgments, remember grace, verse 49. He picks up there. 
Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. This is the meaning of grace. A people who deserve it least are given it most. God's judgment and the response of repentance and God responds with grace. And that is still the story of our lives today. All of us, as Solomon says, are guilty of sin and therefore are worthy of judgments. Yet if we cry out to him, he hears our prayers and he responds with steadfast, gracious love every single time. We've been talking about prayer and I think that's the main point, isn't it? Your spiritual health, as it relates to the discipline of prayer, begins at the cross. The only reason we can pray directly to our Heavenly Father is because Christ has conquered the grave and He serves as our mediator. We go directly to God, not through a tent in a building somewhere in the Middle East. We can go directly to Him with, on our knees because Christ is risen from the dead. The source of our prayer life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray because Christ has conquered. We pray because Christ has forgiven us of our sins. And thus we can have this relationship with our maker. I came across a story in northeast Portland, Oregon, about a woman who had a horse chestnut tree. And before she went on a trip, the property owner wrote out a series or wrote out several wishes that she had and she hung them from her tree. Just a, something she did on her own. Didn't think anything of it. And she went on her trip. She came back sometime later only to discover that this had become a viral thing in her community. People saw those wishes hanging from what has become known as the wishing tree. And they too took piece of paper, wrote a wish, and put it on the tree. And now you can Google this, you can look at the image. It is just smothered with wishes. The wind will blow some off, and then people will just replace them with more wishes. When she returned and noticed this, she, she wrote a note next to the tree, um, and it said this, quote, This is a wishing tree. Please find a blank tag. Write your wish for you, a loved one, the neighborhood, etc., the article goes on to detail that some of the wishes posted on the tree, all anonymous, include, quote, I wish for everlasting love. I wish for everyone to have what they need. I wish my dad was nice. I wish to find my purpose and love for life again. I think it's a fascinating story. But one can understand the sentiment of such a wishing tree. After all, you and I, at our next birthday, are going to blow out candles and make a wish before we do. Chances are you, you may be at the local mall, right, and there's a fountain, and you're going to get out a penny and give it to your child or grandchild or some, some stranger somewhere, and they're going to toss that penny into the wishing fountain. We understand the sentiment, yes. This isn't unique to us. But praying to a faceless, unknown entity will not get you very far in life. In fact, it's worse than trying to communicate 
through text messaging and emojis. A faceless entity that doesn't know your name and you don't know his. Isn't it good news to know? There is a heavenly father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who has come to tabernacle with his people and has provided the means by which we can carry our cares and our needs and our desires and our hearts directly to him. Without priests, without buildings, without a tent, we can go directly to him. And he still to this day, like a loving father, stoops to hear our voice. Why would you not communicate directly to him? What about you? How is your prayer life? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would help us in this regard. There's